True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is not the mini-sode you were expecting. I had a bright idea near the end of November that I wanted to do something special for my listeners in December, to thank you for the amazing support you've given me throughout the year. I have some very interesting interviews lined up, but I'll only be able to release those in 2020, so I thought instead i do my best to release a full episode every week in December. I say do my best because the research process is intensive and our friend load shedding is not helping, as clearly everything to do with the podcast either involves the internet or electricity. Anyway, I'm going to do my absolute best to bring you a full episode every Friday in December, so keep your fingers crossed. When I started looking into today's case, I was about five minutes into my research when I wondered what the heck I'd gotten myself into. Today's episode, episode 15, is the Wemapan serial killer. The serial killer in question is Cedric Markey, and the reason I wondered what I'd gotten myself into is because this man is seriously complex. Through the years, we've collected research on serial killers, and to a certain extent, we probably feel we've come to understand certain things about them. We expect them to behave in a certain way. We expect them to have a particular victim profile and a specific modus operandi. We expect serial killers to operate within specific geographical areas or hunting grounds. Well, Cedric Markey wasn't having any of that. Trying to apprehend Cedric Markey would be like a snake catcher tracking a cobra, and just when he's about to grab the snake, it sprouts wings and flies off. I've referred to Cedric Markey as the Wimmerpan serial killer, as that was his most well-known moniker, but he could have been called the tailor killer, the taxi driver killer, the street sniper, or the home invasion killer. That's right. Cedric Marquet had five different modus operandi. He also had no victim profile, other than his victims being in the situations he chose. He killed people from almost every race. White people, black people, Indian people, and even Chinese people. He killed men and women. My strongest source for this case was Mickey Pistorius's book, Strangers on the Street. Pistorius would describe him as one of the most cold-blooded serial killers in South African history. I also used the book by Hanli Rutif called Bailafalt, a dossier of a serial sleuth. Before I give away too much though, let's get into episode 15, The Wemapan Serial Killer. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Very little is known about Cedric Marquez's early life. He was born on the 10th of September 1963 in Limpopo, and although he'd never discussed much about his childhood, the one incident he would later describe as a defining moment in his life was when he was 12 years old and he had to undergo his traditional initiation. Marke claims that he was forced to live in the bush on his own for three months without food or water. He described this treatment as barbaric. Many African tribes have initiation ceremonies that they expect young boys who are coming of age to undergo. These ceremonies differ from tribe to tribe and some are expected to prove their manhood by surviving on their own in the bush for a period of time, 
I've never heard of it being three months, though. To my knowledge and the best of the research that I could do on the topic, usually the period is more like three days to a week. Cedric's father passed away when he was in grade 10, and he left school at that time to help care for his family. He moved to Johannesburg to look for work and became a plumber, eventually working for himself. Cedric had a wife and four children in Limpopo. She would later move to Johannesburg, and a girlfriend in Johannesburg. At 33 years old, he was living in La Rochelle, when, seemingly without trigger, he began a life of crime. On the 28th of December 1996, Antonio Alfonso was working in Hill Gardens Café in High Street, Rosettenville. Cedric Marquis entered the café and, without warning, attacked Antonio with a hammer. He stole 400 rand from the cash register and fled. Antonio survived the attack. This was the beginning of what would be called the Hammer Series in Marquis's Reign of Terror. Marquis used his ill-gotten gains to celebrate the new year, and on the 6th of January 1997, he struck again. Megan Kanji was a 78-year-old tailor who owned a shop in Madison Street's Jeppy. Around 10 o'clock that morning, Marquis entered Kanji's shop and told him that he was a plumber and he needed to buy a second-hand pair of pants to use for work. Kanji produced a pair in Marquis's size, which he fitted and then handed back to Kanji. As the old man was bagging Marquis's purchase, he suddenly struck Kanji in the left eye with a shifting spanner. The man fell to the ground, and Marquis continued to strike him. The old man regained consciousness in hospital and survived, but never completely recovered from the severe head injuries. Marquis stole five pairs of trousers from the shop. Two days later, Marquis entered Terminus Butchery in Bezadenhurt Avenue, Troyville. He bludgeoned Kenny Chan with a hammer and stole cash from the till. Kenny survived. On the 17th of January 1997, Marquis entered another tailor shop. This time, Villap Brothers in Rocky Street, Dwinfontein. 56-year-old Kantilal Lachman was behind the counter at half past ten in the morning when Marke entered and said he needed alterations done on two pairs of trousers. He waited while Kantilal carried out the alterations. He then pointed to a pair of shoes he wanted to purchase on labour. He gave Kantilal a deposit and gave the name of Patrick McQuena of Walmer Street, Bedford View for the receipt. Marquis pulled a hammer out of his bag and told Kantilal that the head of his hammer was loose and he needed it repaired. Kantilal directed him to a nearby hardware store. Marquis left, had his hammer repaired, and then returned to Villap Brothers, saying he now wanted some underwear. When Kantilal turned around to get the underwear from the shelf, Marquis attacked him with a hammer. He stole the victim's wallet and left the bloodied hammer behind. Kantilal suffered s- several skull fractures and a clot on the brain, but he survived. Let's just talk about the gall of this man for a minute. I'll take a bet that the pants he bought for alterations were from the five he stole from his last tailor victim. Then he has the cheek to pull out the hammer that he no doubt broke while attacking Kenny Chan, and makes his next victim tell him where to have it fixed. Then he comes back, attacks the man, and leaves the murder weapon behind. On the 22nd of January, Marquet attacked Abdul Balbulia in his shop in Bree Street, Newtown. Once again, he acted like a prospective customer and when the man's back was turned, he attacked him with a hammer. He stole Abdul's wallet and 600 rand. Abdul thankfully survived the attack. 
Up until this point, I honestly believe that it's sheer luck that none of Marquez's victims had died. His motive was never robbery. You don't beat people unconscious with a hammer if you want to rob them. And these were mostly elderly men. He could have easily overpowered them. But unfortunately, his next victim would not be so lucky. The very next day, Marke walked into a shop in Von Weilach Street, downtown Johannesburg. Dansukal Patel was alone in the shop and he was bludgeoned with a hammer. Marke stole his wallet and fled. Patel was rushed to the hospital, but he died the same day. Marke had claimed his first life. In February 1997, Hassan Amod was working at JB Cash and Carry in Fordsburg. Marke entered the store, attacked him with a hammer, and fled with 200 rand. Hassan survived. On the 26th of February, David Sadka was attacked with a hammer in a pawn shop in Rocky Street, Yeovil. His wallet and credit cards were stolen. He survived the attack. The next day, Maki and another man entered city shoe repairs in Von Weilach Street, Johannesburg. Maki beat 63-year-old Amrat Lale Gopal with a hammer and stole his wallet. Gopal survived, but he had brain damage and couldn't remember anything. This is the first time that we see Maki working with another person in his attacks. Again, this is extremely strange for a serial killer. Of course, at this stage, he was not technically a serial killer, as only one of his victims had died. This would not be the last attack where he worked with someone else, though. A month would pass before Marke carried out his next attack. This time, it would be in a butchery in Friedewerp. Law put law survived a vicious attack with a hammer, and Marcus stole 900 rand. Again, another month would pass, before on the 22nd of April, Marke walked into Jay's Wholesalers in Commissioner Street, Johannesburg. He asked Yogi Dada if he could mend his shoes, and then suddenly attacked him with a hammer. Yogi fought back, and Marke fled the shop, leaving behind a bag of clothes and the shoes he wanted mended. Oddly, Yogi would later sell the clothing and shoes, so police couldn't collect it as evidence. Unfortunately, there's no more information about the specific crime to tell us when Yogi reported this to the police. If he wasn't badly injured, there's a possibility he didn't report it until much later. These first 11 incidents would later be termed the Hammer Series. At this point, Cedric Markey had claimed one life, and the incidents were being investigated by different detective precincts in Johannesburg, and hadn't yet been grouped. At this time in South Africa, the SAPS didn't have a computer system that could link cases by modus operandi, so no pattern was established. I can only guess that the fact that the bulk of the victims survived also caused the cases to be investigated differently. It's unknown why Marquez suddenly decided to change to his next modus operandi, but after the attack on Yogi, he moved his hunting ground to Wemapan. Wemapan is a well-known lake and recreational area located to the south of Joburg city centre, and around this time, it was an ideal spot for couples to spend private time together. And Marke seemed to know that too, because on the 27th of April 1997, he entered what would later become known as the Wimmerpan series, and his second modus operandi. Marke was prowling Wimmerpan when he came across Elijah Chatswayo, and Eunice in Kosapansi. The couple were spending time together in 58-year-old Elijah's Toyota Cressida, which was parked overlooking the lake. Marke approached the vehicle and, without a word, shot Elijah in the back of the head. He stole his wallet and his firearm 
and then forced Eunice at gunpoint to a nearby mine dump, where he shot and killed her too. When the grisly scene was uncovered, it was impossible to tell whether Eunice had been raped. Unfortunately, when police arrived at Elijah's home address to advise his family of his passing, the door was answered by his wife. They had to pass on the horrific news that not only had he been murdered, but he was with another woman when he died. Marke wandered away from the scene, and nearby came across another woman. He raped her and bludgeoned her to death with a rock. This female victim was never identified. In one night, Cedric Marke had become a serial killer and rapist. The second modus operandi would be returned to later, but at the time, Marke waited a month, and then he moved to his third modus operandi. He began to target taxi drivers. On the 25th of May 1997, Marke boarded a taxi and stayed seated until he was the last passenger. He directed the driver, Sipod Ndema, to Compound Road near Wemapan, saying that this is where he wanted to be dropped off. When Sipo pulled over, Marke alighted and moved to the driver's window. He held a gun to Sipo's head and robbed him of 300 rand. He shot him several times, but thankfully Sipo survived. In June that year, Marke got into the taxi of Michael Mkiza. When they reached Colon Road, close to Wemapan, Marke pulled out a gun and robbed Michael of his shoes, watch and wallet. He shot him several times, but Michael survived. This was the last time Marke attacked a taxi driver. He then briefly returned to his Wemapan couple attack series. 49-year-old Ralph Nguena and 42-year-old Christina Mashigo were sitting on the grass at Wemapan. Marke approached them and shot Ralph twice in the back of the head. A passerby discovered Ralph still clinging to life a little while later. Paramedics arrived quickly, but sadly Ralph passed away while the paramedics were attempting to stabilise him. Police later discovered Christina's body a few metres away from the scene. She had been raped and shot to death. Marke moved on to his fourth modus operandi, after the murders of Ralph and Christina. This MO involved targeting random people on the street by shooting them. By now, Marke had gathered at least three firearms in his robberies. On the 16th of June, Dora Dlala was jogging along the Soweto Highway near Crown Mines when Marke attacked her. He raped her and shot her killing her instantly. On the 21st of June, Sonti Mohokoni was walking with two female friends near Highfeld Technical College near Wemapan. Marke approached the trio and started a conversation. Without warning, he pulled out his firearm and shot Sonti, who died on the scene. The two women fled and Marke stole Sonti's ID book, 20 Rand and his shoes. On the 11th of July, Marke returned to the Wemapan couple-killing M.O. Jerry Naidu and his girlfriend Charlotte Ndlovu were sitting in Jerry's car at Wemapan. Marke approached Jerry and asked him if he could show him how to use the cell phone he had. Jerry wound down his window and Marke immediately shot him in the stomach and chest, fatally wounding him. He stole Jerry's wallet and then dragged the hysterical Charlotte out of the car and pistol-whipped her. He forced her to walk with him for a few metres, and then robbed her of her leather jacket, spectacles and watch. He instructed Charlotte to flag down a taxi, and when one stopped, she managed to get inside, slam the door closed in Marquez's face, and shouted at the driver to speed away, which thankfully he did. The incomplete nature of this crime, with Charlotte having gotten away, possibly irritated Marquis, because he struck again the very next day. 
35-year-old Moses Ramotlawa and 26-year-old Dorcas Makachani, who were spending time at Wemapan when Make came across the couple. He shot Moses twice in the back of the head, killing him instantly. He stole Moses' wallet and then forced Dorcas to walk with them into the nearby tree cover. While they were walking, they passed a vagrant, and Marke told Dorcas that the man was his partner. Marke forced Dorcas to undress and raped her twice. He then gave her money to get a taxi home and tried to arrange a date with her. As Dorcas hurried away, he called after her, asking if she'd be going to Moses' funeral. Now we know that Marke had worked with a partner at least once before, in the Hammer series. But I actually doubt that he even knew the vagrants. More likely, he'd been as surprised to see the man as anyone else, and was possibly concerned that Dorcas might try to get the vagrant's attention to help her. I must say it was pretty quick thinking on his part, albeit cold-blooded, to further terrify his victim, who had just seen her boyfriend murdered and most likely thought her own end was near by making her believe that the threat was even larger than one man. Whether the vagrant even saw Marke and Dorcas is unknown, but he unknowingly played a role in keeping her under control. Marke seems to have taken a liking to certain women, as he would let some go and others he would kill. Perhaps it had something to do with how compliant they were. But the cheek to ask for a date, and then sickeningly ask her if she was going to attend her boyfriend's funeral. Just, well, yes, it blows my mind. After this murder, the Wemapan series was coordinated into one investigation and placed under Brixton Murder and Robbery Unit. The investigation was headed up by Captain Pitt Bailefeld. Bailefeld was known as South Africa's top cop, and a super sleuth. In his SAPS career, which spanned 40 years, he investigated some of the most high-profile crimes in South African history and had a 99% solve rate. Bailefeld passed away in 2017 after a short battle with cancer, but at the time that Marke was stalking lovers at Wemapan, Bailefeld was in his prime, and Marke may not have known it at the time, but he had a serial killer slayer on his tail. Bailefeld determined at the time that all of the Wimmerpan slayings had occurred between Friday and Sunday. Marke was many things, but he was not a stupid man. He knew that couples would most likely be at Wimmerpan on the weekends. Four days after sending Dorcas on her way, Marke was back at Wimmerpan. 26-year-old Stanley Kolobe and his partner Emily Madiba were parked in their car when Marke held them up at gunpoint. He forced them to get out of the vehicle and then he took his sexual sadism to a different level by forcing them to have sex with each other while he watched. He stole Stanley's wallet and then had the couple get dressed and walked them into the tree cover nearby. Stanley made a run for it and managed to get away, but Marke raped Emily and shot her before stealing her leather jacket and watch. Thankfully, Emily survived. On the 18th of July 1997, Marke would reach a crescendo of sorts by killing five people in one day, using two different MOs and three separate incidents. His first two victims on this day were 25-year-old Samuel Malema and his girlfriend, Catherine Lequani, also 25. The pair were walking along Main Reef Road in Langlachta when Marke approached them with his gun drawn and demanded Samuel's wallet. Samuel put up a fight and received three gunshots to the head. Marke then shot Catherine in the knee presumably so that she couldn't run away as he'd experienced before, and dragged her into the bushes, where he raped her twice, before fleeing. He then proceeded to Claremont, where he came across David Duplessis 
and Sarah Linkpane on Princess Avenue. He shot and killed David, before raping Sarah and then shooting and killing her too. He stole the shoes off David's feet. In another street in Claremont, a young couple, 19-year-old Martin Stander and 15-year-old Lalani van Vijk, had pulled over on the side of the road to have a cigarette before Martin took Lalani home. They'd spent the evening at a nightclub where Martin was a DJ. Malkia walked straight up to Martin and shot him in the head. He raped Lalani before taking her life as well. He stole their clothing and jewellery. Lalani was Malkia's youngest victim. She was identified by a Minnie Mouse tattoo on her shoulder. After this insane spree, Marke had just one week downtime before he saw Haniel Mitsiotsi and Doris Mangapela walking on Boyson's Reserve Road. This time, Marke was not alone, though. He had a partner with him during this attack. Both men demanded money from the couple, and when none was forthcoming, they assaulted Haniel and raped Doris. Marke beat Doris to death with a stone. They stole Doris's trousers and shoes. After this, from August 1997, Marke reverted to the Hammer series of murders. 64-year-old Luvio Vitoni was working in his shop, Luvio's Shoe Repairs, in Main Street, Jeppe, when Marke entered and dropped off his shoes for repair. He returned the next day to collect them, and when he did, he inquired about some belts that Luvio had for sale hanging behind the counter. Luvio passed him one, and Marke tried it on. He then pulled out the hammer and hit Luvio in the face. Luvio lost consciousness, and when he woke a while later, Marke was gone, but he'd left his bag behind, as well as the hammer. In the bag, Luvio found shoe polish, an empty wallet, and the shoes he'd just repaired. Luvio sold the items before they could be collected as evidence. Okay, I'm sorry, but what is it with these victims selling the evidence? I don't mean to sound harsh or unsympathetic, but a guy smacks you in the face with a hammer, and you sell the stuff he leaves behind? Maybe they realised that there was no identifying information in the bag, but those items probably belonged to other victims. Anyway, it didn't really make a difference in the end, but I just found that really odd. Another odd thing is Mike's obsession with shoes. He's constantly stealing his victim's shoes, he robs and attempts to murder several shoe repairmen, and he carries shoe polish around with him. On the 16th of August, 53-year-old Natvalal Gangaran opened SK Taylor's in Tramway Street, Turfentine, for business. The last thing Natvalal remembers is switching on the iron to press a pair of trousers. Maki attacked him from behind with a hammer and stole his wallet. Natvalal survived. On the 19th of August, a cleaner arrived at Corolio Stores in Bertram's Road, to find Esop Hassan in a pool of blood on the floor. Marke had attacked him with a hammer around 10.30 that morning. He survived, but he had no memory of the attack. On the morning of the 29th of August, 56-year-old Kanu Parbu opened KB Patel Taylor's in Rocky Street, Yeovil. Marke attacked him with a hammer and stole his wallet. Kanu died in hospital a little while later. On the 14th of September at SA Wholesalers in Pine Avenue, Fordsburg, Abdul Karim was attacked with a hammer, but survived. His wallet was stolen. Five days after that, 75-year-old Harjivan Daya left Ndaya Taylor's in Crown Road, Fordsburg, to go to the toilet. When he returned, he was attacked from behind with a hammer. 
his wallet and a bag of clothes were stolen. Thankfully, he survived. On the 4th of October, Makia killed Mohammed Ibrahim, who was working in Badat's store, La Rochelle. Mohammed sustained severe head and neck injuries, and his body was found by a customer later that day. Cash had been stolen from the register. Ten days later, Marquez struck again, killing Jacinto Serrano in Good Hope Cafe in Turfentine by beating him to death with a hammer. He stole some cash from Jacinto's person before leaving. On the 18th of October, Eduardo Augusto was approached by Marquez in Soweto Wholesalers in Ofer Road, Boysons. He asked Eduardo for a plastic bag, and when the man bent down to get one, Marquez struck him over the head with a hammer. Eduardo survived, and Marquez stole the entire cash register, which contained 500 rand, Eduardo's ID book, and 30 rand from Eduardo's pocket. 36-year-old Mahesh Vallabh was approached by Marquez and a female accomplice while working in Jay's Taylor's in Von Veilich Street. The pair said that they wanted to buy underwear, and then attacked Mahesh with a hammer and stole 500 rand before fleeing. Mahesh survived. On the 4th of November, Anil Mehta's son dropped him off at his shop in Protea Centre at 6am. At 8am, one of his employees arrived for work and found the shop locked. Inside, she saw Anil's bloodied body laying on the floor. A security guard kicked the door open, but Anil died on the scene. A bag containing two pairs of jeans and an invoice was found on the counter. Marquis had once again prepared his prey the day before by having the man do alterations for him. When Anil opened that morning, he'd been surprised to find his customer waiting for him to collect his jeans. He'd been beaten with a hammer. Around this time, Captain Pitt Bailefelt, who was assigned to the Wemapan series, received news from his superiors that he'd be receiving another high-profile series to investigate. The Asian community in Johannesburg were up in arms over the continued attacks on tailors and shoe repair businesses in the area. As the community discussed the cases among themselves and the surviving victims spoke to one another about their experiences, they came to believe that the same man was responsible for all of the hammer attacks. Feeling distrust in the police, because they had not yet apprehended the perpetrator, they spoke to the then Minister of Safety and Security for local provincial council, Jessie Duarte, and demanded that she ensure the police start investigating the hammer attacks as one series. This was handed over to Bailefelt and his team. At this time, of course, there was nothing to suggest that the Hammer series and the Wemapan couple-killing series were connected in any way. It wasn't uncommon in the 90s in South Africa to have two serial killers operating in the same area at the same time. So Bailefeld, who'd been specially trained to catch serial killers, came up with a plan to put surveillance on the tailor shops and shoe repair stores in the area hoping to catch the killer red-handed. Unfortunately, the community were not satisfied that the cases were being investigated properly, and they went to the media. Within days, Bailefeld's plan to run surveillance in the area, all the names of the victims, including the surviving ones, and all the locations of the incidents, was splashed all over the front pages of newspapers. Maki, now aware that the police were investigating, abandoned the Hammer series. The irresponsible behaviour of the press in this case not only meant that Maki was not arrested at the time, which could have saved many more lives, it also put all of the surviving victims at risk. What was stopping Maki from going back and finishing the victims off to silence them? Clearly feeling trapped and realising that his previous M.O.s were too risky to revert to, Marquia began to use his fifth and final modus operandi, 
home invasions. He changed his method of killing as well. Jose Carres was stabbed to death by Marquez in his home in Bertha Street's Regent Park. Marquez stole his television, video recorder, wallet and a pair of shoes, as well as his house keys. On the 7th of November, Arthur McIntyre was beaten to death with a hammer in his home in South Rand Road, South Hills. Marquez stole a video machine, a portable radio, jewellery, clothes and a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Bailafelt had to call off the surveillance on the stores due to the press coverage and it's likely that Maki, a regular in the area, noticed the lack of police presence and he briefly returned to his hammer series. On the same day that he killed Arthur McIntyre, he entered Victoria Fashions in Main Street's Rosettenville and attacked Chinese couple Chan Kao and Chi Kao with a hammer. He stole some cash and fled. Chan died in hospital the next day, and Chi survived. A week later, Marke killed Taiko Ranchord in Boston Taylor's. He then switched to MOs again. On the 28th of November, Gerard Lavu was riding his bicycle at Wemapan when Marke shot him in the back, killing him instantly. He stole Gerard's bicycle and later sold it. On the 12th of December, Menin Kabinde and Tandi Ndaba were in a shack that they'd built at Blue Dam Homestead Park. Marke approached the pair, pretending to be a policeman. He said that he was looking for stolen property and searched through their belongings. He then instructed the pair to follow him to his vehicle. They complied, and Marke pulled out his firearm and held it to Minnie's head. He proceeded to rape Tandi several times, and then shot and killed Minnie. Later that same day, Marke broke into the home of Cyril Slattery in Turfentine and bludgeoned him to death with a hammer. He stole a TV. Two days later, 25-year-old Enoch Mgorma and 24-year-old Diliwe Ngogela were walking through the felt in South Kliplefiersbach Road in Morfitt View when they were attacked by Maki. He forced them to have sex while he watched and then fired a warning shot at them to scare them. He raped Diliwe and released her when she promised not to identify him. He robbed Enoch of his clothes and watch and left him unharmed. On the 19th of December, Marke came across Bongani Gama and Ntombifuti Nzomalo in Pioneer Park. He shot Bongani in the back, killing him instantly, and then abducted Ntombifuti and took her to Wemapan, where he raped her twice. He forced the woman to walk with him, and they crossed paths with two men, one called Richmond Febana. Marke shot Richmond and stole his shoes. Richmond survived. Marke then took Ntombifuti to Faraday Station, where he raped her again. He then released her, telling her that she was lucky he didn't kill her. It would later emerge that Pitt Bailafelt had an ace up his sleeve at this time. Bailafelt describes his investigative practice as obsessive. He says that he doesn't just go to a crime scene once. He returns there several times to look for evidence they missed or get a different perspective. He'd done this with one of the Wemapan murder scenes, and it had paid off. He found a tissue near the scene. He was able to pull a DNA profile from it. Bailafelt was slowly collecting a trail of DNA from the rape victims too. Bailafeld spoke to the surviving victims, mostly women, who, after being raped, were released if they begged for their lives. They described a man as small in stature, but strong and very aggressive. He would chase the woman while swearing at them in Afrikaans. He bragged to his victims about his other murders. Bailafeld would also later explain 
that he and a female officer had set a trap one weekend at Wemapan. They had parked in their vehicle, pretending to be just another couple spending time with each other. They waited in the car for nine hours, and when it started to get dark, Bailafel called it off because he was afraid for his colleague's safety. As they were driving away, they got a radio call that a man had been creeping up the copy behind them, and when they started their engine, he fled into the darkness. Then, quite unexpectedly, in late December, Bailafelt got his break. A member of the public called in to say that there was a strange man lurking around the local hotel. He never ate or slept there, but he was always around, and he wasn't a vagrant. The description that was provided fit the surviving Wemapan's victim's description of their attacker like a glove. He was a small, thin man, neatly clad in green trousers and a grey jersey with a faded printed face on it. The caller also said that he thought he might be in a relationship with a woman who lived in the hotel. Bailafelt attended the scene and found out the man's girlfriend was one Angelina Tlapani. She worked at a nearby dog parlour. The police instructed the informants not to alert Angelina to their presence there that night. On the morning of the 23rd of December 1997, Bailafelt and his team started surveillance on Angelina. At about 11 o'clock, she got into a taxi and travelled towards Jeppe. Near the railway station, she got out and waited on the corner of John Page and Pine Road. A small man clad in green trousers and a grey jersey came walking towards her. Cedric Marquet was taken into custody. Police found a single bullet cartridge in his pocket. Marquet refused to say a word. A journalist would later describe Marquet as a fresh-faced young guy, someone you wouldn't hesitate to employ if he came knocking on your door on a Saturday morning. Blood was drawn from Marquet, and the forensics lab worked right through Christmas to process the DNA against what had been collected from the scene. Their sacrifice and that of their families was not in vain. The DNA matched. Maki was their man. Keep in mind, though, that this is still only about the Wemapan murders. The Hammer series is still being investigated as a separate case. Bailafelt recalls that Marquis did not take well to being incarcerated. He received a call one day that Marquis was screaming and throwing his feces at guards. Bailafelt rushed out to the holding cells to try and calm the man down, also probably hoping that perhaps this break in sanity was what he needed to get him talking. Marquis was not having it, though. Pip tried to make a connection by offering him a cigarette. Mikey screamed at him that he didn't smoke, but took the cigarette anyway, put it behind his ear, then pulled it out and crumpled it to pieces. For three hours, Mikey screamed at Bailafelt that he had no idea what he was talking about. Bailafelt had learned that Mikey had a special connection with his mother, and he used this to calm Marquis down by offering to arrange for his mother to visit. The next day, Bailafelt confronted Marquis with the DNA results. Marquis smiled and admitted that he was the Wemapan killer. An independent officer then accompanied Marquis as he pointed out the scenes. He had given most of the items he'd stolen from his victims to his mother. Bailafelt took Marquis to Limpopo to retrieve the items, but also to keep his promise about seeing his mother. During the visit, Bailafelt discovered that Marquis's mother had been one of two wives to Marquis's father. Polygamy is common in many African cultures. After Marquis's father died, he and his mother had become second-class citizens in the household with the other wife and her children, taking most of the inheritance left behind. They were left destitute. Marquis expressed an intense hatred 
for his father, after having left them in such a situation. Bailafelt described Malka's mother as devastated to see her son shackled and in the company of policemen. He allowed the prisoner a few moments to speak with his mother. Bailafelt seemed to have gained a modicum of trust from Marke with this move, as, on the way back to Brixton, Marke, out of the blue, offered to show Bailafelt where he'd hidden the pistol he used for the murders. He directed them to a mine dump, and Bailafelt recalls being surprised that, even in the dark, Marke knew exactly where to go. Even though he was shackled and cuffed, he managed to move quickly and arrived at the hiding spot before his companions. Bailafelt described the moment that he realised Marquis was bending down to pick up the gun with every intention of shooting him. He knocked him out the way, retrieved the pistol and loaded the prisoner back in the car. Bailafelt dug as far as he could into Marquis' background and spoke to some of his previous employers, who all said they trusted Marquis implicitly. It emerged that one of Marquis' brothers was a police sergeant. He approached Bailafelt with a 500 rand bribe to help his brother out. In speaking to Marquis' wife, Bailafelt discovered that early on in their marriage, she had been unfaithful on several occasions, and Marquis had found out. When she had encounters with other men, they were always in the Wemapan area and on nearby corpies. Marquis would chase his female victims up corpies, swearing and demeaning them before raping them. When they searched the room that Marquis rented with his wife, both the landlord and Marquis' wife was shocked to discover that meek and mild Cedric Marquis was the Wemopan serial killer. Still, Bailafelt had no idea that he had his hammer killer in custody as well, until he tracked down the man who'd purchased Gerard Lavoux's stolen bicycle from Marquis. It was a pawn shop owner, and as such there had been a receipt for the transaction. The name on the receipt was Patrick McQuenna. The name rang a bell to Bailafelt. It was the same name on the receipts used by Kantilal Lachman's attacker. Bailafelt says that in that moment, he realised that for months he'd been searching for two serial killers, when in actual fact, it had always been just one. What he refers to as a superkiller. When Bailafelt first asked Marquet what dealings he had with tailors, he said that he would take his clothes to be repaired because the woman he raped would sometimes tear his clothes and he liked to look neat. He eventually admitted that he had been responsible for all of the Hammer murders too. Bailafelt said that whenever Marquet confessed, it didn't come across as an offloading of guilt. It came across as though he were boasting. Marquis' obsession with clothing and his appearance was revealed as the apparent spark for him attacking tailors. He claimed that a tailor had messed up one of his shirts, and that's when he decided to start killing them. Eventually, Bailafelt was able to piece together all five MOs, and Marquis faced 133 charges in total. Cedric Marquis' trial started in April 1998. It lasted for 355 days, with all the surviving victims testifying. The victims who had sustained brain damage were only required to state their name, when and where they'd been attacked, and whether they'd been struck behind the left or right ear with a hammer. On the 16th of March 2000, Cedric Marquet was found guilty of 27 counts of murder, 26 counts of attempted murder, 41 counts of robbery with aggravating circumstances, 1 count of attempted robbery, 14 counts of rape, 1 account of assault with grievous bodily harm, 3 counts of illegal possession of a firearm, and 1 count of illegal possession of ammunition 
for the single bullet they found in his pocket. He was sentenced to 1,835 years in prison, plus three months for the bullet in his pocket. I do applaud the state for eking out every single day of jail time they could get. Cedric Marquia's crimes changed the way South Africa, and indeed the world, saw serial killers. A Canadian serial killer expert, Kim Rosmo, studied Marquis. She was a pioneer in the field of criminal profiling and developed a mathematical model according to which the most likely dwelling area of a serial killer could be calculated. She used Marquis' crimes as a case study and experiment, and it showed that the majority of his crimes were committed within 500 metres of his two places of residence, his place of work, and his brother and girlfriend's homes. Pitt Bailefeld described Cedric Marquet as the worst of the worst, and without a doubt, the most complex case of his career. Serial killers are one of the scariest types of criminals, but we take solace in the fact that we believe we're starting to understand them. Cedric Marquet proved that, as he told Pitt Bailefeld, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'd like to think that Marquet was a one-off, an aberration of aberrations, but I don't think he was. I think that there are many more Cedrics out there, men and women who don't follow the pattern of crime we expect, and in so doing, make it all the more difficult for them to be caught. Thankfully for the multitudes of victims impacted, this one was caught. And today he sits in CMAX prison, stewing away for 1,835 years and three months. A little human volcano of rage with no further opportunities to erupt. Thank you for listening to episode 15, The Wemma Pan Killer. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday, hopefully with another full episode as a December bonus. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.